We're nearing the end of our series on the fruit of the Holy Spirit that God is producing in the lives of His people. As we've seen, this fruit is a single fruit which has various expressions and aspects that are listed in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The Apostle Paul tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Today's aspect that we'll consider is, gen- is gentleness. And certainly, the, produce- the Spirit produces more good things in our lives than just this list. And we're going to continue, uh, even through the month of August, to continue to teach about the work of the Holy Spirit. But other scriptures give us more. But we do see a comprehensive picture in this list of characteristics of, of the power of God at work. When we see uh, this, these aspects, these things being brought out in the life of the Christian. We remember that the fruit of the Spirit is not actually describing natural sort of character traits or gifts or talents. Instead, this is supernatural that God is doing in our lives these qualities that He's producing. Gradually, uh, and yet inevitably, uh, God is producing this fruit within us. We'll be looking at a smattering of different texts this morning, to explore the Bible's teaching about this idea of gentleness, uh, what it looks like in Christ, what it looks like in his people, as we have uh, the Spirit and this fruit growing within us. So pray with me as we begin. Father, we do ask that you would bless the, the teaching and preaching of your word. Lord, that you would speak to your people through it. Uh, God, that you would powerfully uh, touch our hearts as we engage with your word this morning. Give me the words that are true, that are from you, that we could apply them, that we could understand them, uh, and that we would be changed by them. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, gentleness. What does it mean to you? It's not really a word that I think that I use very often. I was trying to think of things that we would say, like, this is what gentleness is like. How do we use the word in modern English? And so the best I could really come up with is see how it's used sort of most commonly and and is mostly in relation to the realm of household products, right? Baby shampoo is gentle. That has to be a characteristic of baby shampoo or else it's not baby shampoo, right? You need gentle fabric softener, gentle dryer sheets, to keep your clothes soft. Your washing machine has a gentle cycle on it to take good care of fabrics that are not as strong as other fabrics, right? And that actually is a pretty good picture of gentleness as we describe it from the Bible. Something that is, that has the washing machine, for instance, that has the power to be very strong and agitating, yet on a setting that is gentle to care for clothes that are weaker, fabrics that are not so strong. How does the Bible indeed describe this idea of gentleness? What characteristic is Paul describing that the Holy Spirit is producing? The Greek word that he uses means a lot of things. It means this kind of idea of a quality of gentle friendliness. It incorporates a number of different synonyms, being considerate, being humble, being courteous, being kind. It's the opposite of being rough, of being brusque, of being angry or violent. 
or having a bad temper. So that's kind of the, the field of this idea of gentleness. It also includes the idea of meekness, and the idea of meekness as meekness used to mean in English rather than what it means today. If we think of something that's meek today, it means like someone who's kind of a pushover, right? Someone who doesn't stand up for yourself, someone who's too quiet, too shy, too reserved. Meekness seems like weakness, like you're kind of docile. But in English, meekness used to mean something more like the idea of having a strength that accommodates weakness. Meekness meant having a kindness that's expressed towards a weaker person, not being weak oneself, but being restrained in one's strength towards the weak. And I'm not sure why this meaning changed over time. I guess just words, you know, the meaning of words change over time. But what it, meekness means today is very different from what it used to mean in English. And the idea of what it used to mean is much more connected to this biblical idea of gentleness or meekness. As I was working on the sermon, I was thinking that gentleness also has a lot of parallels with the idea of patience that we saw a number of weeks ago. The biblical picture of patience has this similar sense of strength, of a positive use of strength in relation to weakness. We see that same idea with a little bit of a different nuance, but a similar idea here with the idea of gentleness. As the Old Testament was being translated to Greek in the centuries before Jesus came, the word for gentleness that we have in the New Testament here is not the word that was used to describe God. When we talked about goodness and patience, we saw that the, that the New Testament writers were picking up the Old Testament words to describe God, right? God is good. God is patient. And therefore, they were using the same words to describe God in the Old Testament that they were using in the New Testament. It's not really the same with this idea of gentleness. And I think it's really interesting that this is actually different. The Hebrew equivalent for this Greek word is related to this idea of meekness or gentleness, but it's also in the same semantic range. It also means similar things to being humble or being afflicted, often through discipline, or being bowed down, or being poor and lowly. And so we can see how when they were translating and, and looking at, does this word describe God, they would say, no, we wouldn't describe God, God the Father, as he's revealing himself in the Old Testament, as one who is disciplined, as one who is poor, as one who is bowed down. Does that make sense? In other words, a Hebrew person would never use this word to describe the God of Abraham as he's revealing himself to his people in the Old Testament. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't have a characteristic of gentleness in the Old Testament. We see pictures of, of God in the Psalms as coming and, and being um, even motherly, uh, as we read it in the Psalms in different places, of having some characteristic of gentleness, but they weren't using the same word. They would describe it somewhat differently. And I think it's really interesting because the way that this word for gentleness or meekness or humility was being used in the Old Testament was mostly to describe people who have God's ear, ones that God helps, ones that God cares for. Those are gentle, those are meek, those are humble, those are weak, afflicted ones. I've listed a number of examples in the bulletin that you could look up later. Psalm 25.9, for example, says, He, that's God, leads the humble. 
in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. So, to summarize a bit, God the Father is not described using the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek word for gentle. This is... uh, This word is used in the Greek Old Testament translation, but not when describing God the Father directly, mostly when describing how he engages people who are, who have that characteristic. Except that there's this interesting picture in the prophet Zechariah, and he writes this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous. And having salvation is he, humble, that's meek, that's gentle, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations, and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth." Who is this majestic figure? He's a king. He's being welcomed to the shouts of rejoicing by his people as he arrives in their midst, as he comes to Jerusalem, the great city, Zion, the place where God meets his people. He's righteous. He's bringing salvation. He will rule from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. And he's humble. He's meek. He's described by this word that means even afflicted. And I think it's interesting that we get here to the end of the Old Testament, basically just in this one place, and we meet this character who is greater than any other human being, right? He's the king over the whole world, and yet he's characterized by this kind of gentleness and humility. And of course, we know who the prophet is referring to and even what this act is referring to as we see Jesus, the promised Messiah, coming as we fast forward in the story in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, directly fulfilling this prophecy as described in Matthew 21 and by the other gospel writers. So I think even as I was going through this sort of a study of this word in the Bible, we see the complex nature of the Trinity revealed in the Old Testament. And in terms of human language, we see the distinction and the unity of Father, Son, and Spirit. And the prophet Zechariah is giving us, as it were, this kind of bridge that connects the Holy One of Israel, the Divine One, with this characteristic of gentleness being expressed in the Messiah, in the Son, and thus then being produced by the Spirit. Sometimes I think we talk about um, as we talk about the relationship of Christianity and Judaism. We we there's this idea that we're basically worshiping the same God. It's just incomplete for Jewish uh, reli- people of the Jewish religion who don't have Jesus. And there's something about that perspective to think about. What does it mean if you just had the Old Testament? But I would say, from the sweep of biblical revelation, that you can't understand the character of the Father, apart from the sending of his Son. In other words, the Old Testament is incomplete without the New Testament. And really, without seeing this divine figure as equal with God the Father, then you don't see something important about the Godhead, about the Trinity. That God 
is characterized by this kind of gentleness, as shown forth gloriously in his Son, as produced in the lives of his people by his Spirit. So if you don't have the Son and you don't have the Spirit, then then the Father's gentleness, that part of who God is, is not nearly so evident, is it? So then, as we come to the New Testament, what would we expect to see? We would expect to see a strong and gentle Messiah, this one riding on a colt into Jerusalem on that day. And certainly that's exactly what we do see. I want to look just at one place to describe Jesus in his gentleness, and that's in Matthew chapter 11. In this chapter, Jesus has addressed the doubts of John the Baptist about his messianic work. He's addressed the crowds and their unbelief towards John, in their unbelief towards Jesus himself. He's pronounced judgment on unrepentant cities, and he must have felt acutely the burden of these events. His prophet, his cousin, this great prophet, was expressing doubts about who Jesus was. There was this persistent unbelief and hard-heartedness of the people who saw his miracles firsthand and who heard the truth from John. In the context of this chapter, in the context of what could have been very discouraging for Jesus, he gives us a great promise. We'll look at Matthew 11, verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. And my burden is light. And this, these are maybe familiar words to you, but this is an amazing invitation. We'll have a few observations as we look at it. Jesus invites all who are weary and burdened. And really, who isn't? This is a great invitation to see that the burdens of this life are too much for us. But it requires a certain humility, doesn't it? to face our limits honestly and our helplessness against the burdens of this life. There are those who don't think they're weary and burdened, who think they don't need someone to help them, and they're not listening to Jesus. This is an invitation for the weary, not the strong, not the self-reliant, the self-made person who has it figured out. Jesus invites those who know weakness, the weary, and the burdened. And secondly, Jesus invites us to rest. The weary find the promise of rest. If you need a rest that goes deeper than sleep, here it is. Some of us maybe have, have had times where we've woke, woken up after a good night of sleep and not felt restless. Rested. We've still felt restless. Jesus is promising something deeper than physical rest. He's promising a spiritual rest. And we, I think, in our day and in our culture have a terrible time resting. I know I do. A terrible time slowing down, a terrible time like relaxing. We turn relaxation and recreation into a chore that leaves us less relaxed in the end, don't we? There's a woman in our church in Alabama who had, they had a a vacation home so they would go to the vacation home, and you know, when they would get back, you would ask her, well, how, was your, uh, how was your time away? How was your trip? Well, oh, honey, I need a vacation from my vacation. 
I mean, it was, it was cute, you know. Um, and she said it all the time. It was very consistent. It was even <laughs> for someone who had a vacation place to go to, it was still not totally relaxing because life isn't. But Jesus says there is rest, and you're invited to it. Third, Jesus invites us to be yoked to the right burden. Jesus doesn't say now that life will be carefree, that it will require no effort, that you won't have to work at anything anymore. The the idea of a yoke we're familiar with is where they would use to put on the neck of an ox or bull, uh, two of them together, so that they would pull uh, a wagon or a plow or whatever it was that they were using. And this idea of a yoke is, we find it a lot of places in the Bible as it's described. So Jesus isn't saying, I'm going to take off your yoke. He's going to say, take my yoke upon you. And so he's not saying that life will now require no effort, right? He's saying, and actually nothing could be further from a life of ease and comfort, actually, than the calling of the Christian to follow Jesus. It's not easy. And he said it would not be easy. In fact, he said it would require everything of us to give up our very lives. But that is not the same as bearing the burdens of this life. Jesus' burden is a light one. It's an easy one. It's one that fits us. It's not overwhelming. It comes from an expression of love from the one who cares for us more than anyone else. Earthly burdens aren't removed by working harder. Earthly burdens aren't removed by giving more effort. They drain our life due to the fall and due to the curse, and they tempt us to give into despair. The greatest earthly burdens and cares don't go away because the greatest ones, right, are the ones that we can't do anything about, the prospect of aging, the prospect of death. We can't stop it. We can't turn back the clock. We become more weary and worn out each year, right? They say it's pretty much downhill after 40 in terms of our physical bodies. That stuff starts to break and wear out. We feel this burden physically, but we feel it spiritually. We feel it emotionally. There's nothing we can do to prevent our aging. There's nothing we can do to prevent the curse and the effects of it all around us. These burdens that are placed on the earth that the earth is groaning under according to Romans 8. We feel those things as people who live in this world. We also feel a burden that's expressed in a sort of double-edged sword of one's relationship to the law of God. The Pharisees took comfort in multiplying laws and adding them on top of God's laws and telling everyone to do them without fulfilling the laws themselves, right? The religious leaders of Jesus' day had this exact practice of building laws upon God's laws that were just man-made laws that they would use to oppress people, that they would use to lay burdens upon people. Jesus said that very thing in Matthew 23, 4. He said that you are adding, he said, woe to you, because you're adding heavy burdens on the shoulders of others, and you're not willing to lift a finger to help them. He was exposing their hypocrisy. But the law is like that. 
The law is the taskmaster. The law adds a burden onto our life because we can't keep it. In Acts 15, at the Jerusalem Council, you remember the apostles were debating the Christians' relationship with the law. How much was the Old Testament Jewish law still binding on new believers in Christ? And the church had to wrestle with this question and had to decide it. If you remember the conversation, it kind of went back and forth, and the Apostle Paul was there. And I wonder if he was thinking of this passage. I wonder how, you know, if he was familiar with that teaching of Jesus. Because what he said in arguing for grace, in arguing for the free gift of salvation against those who wanted to add human effort and requirements for salvation, circumcision, and all of the other parts of the Jewish law. But Paul said this, and, and this is in Acts 15, 10, and 11. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are, as he's referring to the Gentiles. Did you hear that? The yoke on the neck is a burden, and we couldn't bear it. And Paul knew it because he was better at multiplying laws and trying to fulfill them than anyone else. He was a Pharisee until he met the Lord Jesus. And then he understood that those laws were just burdens, and they wouldn't get him to salvation, and they wouldn't bring him closer to God because he couldn't get there on his own because they were making him self-righteous. And so he describes the yoke of the law as a burden that no one can bear up and no one can fulfill. In contrast to salvation by grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's using the same image. The grace of the gospel frees us from the yoke of slavery to the law that we couldn't keep. Someone had to keep that law for us. We can't make ourselves right before God. It's impossible in every way. And Paul is saying, we couldn't, brothers, you see this. We couldn't bear the burden of this law. We couldn't fulfill it. Someone had to do it for us. And look, he did. And so we're not going to add those burdens back onto people. We're going to rejoice that God has made us free and given us this free gift in Christ. We have one who gave us this invitation and gave us this promise. And he's gentle, and he's humble as he describes himself. He's lowly of heart. This is the fruit of the Spirit kind of gentleness. Jesus, the strong one, is using his strength in service to the weak. His posture and his attitude toward the weak is characterized by this kind of gentleness, to invite the weak to find rest to take the heavy burden and to give them the light one that fits, to teach us of his nature and our need to rest. And so, of course, we can see that this is a very precious promise, a life-changing one from this one who is describing himself and who we can see is this kind of gentle. Jesus shows us what gentleness looks like. It looks like humility. It looks like strength to raise others up. It looks like caring for the hurting. It looks like consideration of the needs of others. It looks like kindness. So again, as we've seen in this idea of the, the fruit of the Spirit, what God wants to produce in us is more of what He's like. 
Jesus is gentle. The Holy Spirit produces gentleness in the lives of God's people. What does this look like for us? Well, there are some 10 or 15 more places in the New Testament where we see this word for gentleness, how it's to be expressed and how it's to be lived out in relationships. I've just listed a few there of some of the practical expressions of gentleness that we see. Biblical gentleness is the opposite of harsh treatment. In 1 Corinthians 4.21, Paul is calling out the believers in Corinth. They've been criticizing him. They've been telling him that, that he's not a good apostle. And, you know, there's been this tension in their relationship as others have come in and, and, and tried to undercut Paul's message. And so Paul says to them, what do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip? Some translations are a rod, you know, a, a tool of discipline or with love in a spirit of gentleness. You've got two choices here, right? The whip or love and gentleness. The whip isn't a loving discipline, the way Paul's describing it. It's harsh discipline. It's harsh treatment. The other side is love and gentleness. So there, so we can see the contrast very clearly. Paul speaks often about gentleness and how it's vital in our relationships in the church. In Ephesians 4, we come to the second half of the letter. The first half of Ephesians, the first three chapters, is about what God has done, about this amazing drama of redemption that God has worked out in Christ for his people. And then the last three chapters of Ephesians are the practical application. This is what it means. This is what it looks like. This is how wives relate to husbands. This is how children relate to parents. You know, all of that kind of teaching from Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. To the transition point is there at the beginning of Ephesians 4. Paul says, uh, live out, live a life worthy of your calling. And the very next sentence, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. The very first aspect of living out our calling, as Paul has said, this is all that God has done. Now this is what that means for you. The first sentence after that is, how we, describing how we relate to each other. And gentleness is right there in the beginning, along with humility and patience and bearing with one another in love. Gentleness is vital to restore a repentant sinner, according to Galatians 6.1. The beautiful process of lifting up one who is broken down by sin. The picture of sinners raising up a sinner through their gentleness is what Paul is talking about here. Strength and kindness to the one who's been broken, to the one who's vulnerable, to the one who's weak, and yet who is welcomed back into the fold. It requires a strength and gentleness to bring back the one who has suffered on their level, to support them and help them, and restore them. And there are beautiful pictures, in, even in our church, of church discipline, of having to say strong things to people who are sinning, and of them coming back and being restored, and, having, and, and the opportunity to do that in gentleness. It's something so foreign to our culture, but something so vital to the life of the church, is this gentleness that restores a repentant sinner, as other sinners restore this repentant sinner to the fellowship 
and welcome them back in. That's a particular picture there that he's describing in Galatians 6.1. Finally, gentleness is vital as we relate to those outside the church, as those who are far away from God. Our apologetics are to be characterized by a spirit of gentleness and respect as we answer those who ask us about the hope that's within us. That's from 1 Peter 3, 15, and 16. And it, it occurs to me as if, if people saw this idea of gentleness being lived out within the church, that that idea is what Peter's describing. That when in that passage, as he says, as he says that, you, that people are asking you about the hope that's within you. The, the ones whose heavy burdens have been lifted, the ones who know their weariness and have found rest, what an apologetic that is. If someone can see that in our lives, that they will ask, what's the hope that's within you? How can you live in this burdensome life and not be dragged down into it? Can you do this? How are you doing this? And Peter says, that's the, that's the place for us to say, this is the reason for the hope that I have and that we would do so in humility and in kindness and in particularly in gentleness, using the same very word. Such a different way of life would it draw out from the, those questions about hope from a world that doesn't have hope that we can answer with grace and gentleness. There's a final idea related to gentleness I wanted to mention as we sort of look through the sweep of it in the New Testament. You can't leave this one out. In the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek. It's the same word. Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. So Jesus, the perfect example of gentleness, of this humble strength, will inherit all things from his Father. And so also those who believe in him and follow in his path of gentleness, will inherit the earth. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? The gentle will call the shots. The humble will take over the world. And this orients us again to this idea that we see again and again and again, that Jesus is bringing an upside-down kingdom, that Jesus is reversing expectations for his glory and for our good. And that's what he has done. As we think more about the implications of this message, I'd encourage you to consider the example of Jesus again as you read about him in the Gospels, as you see what he did. We see this gentleness everywhere of his strength being restrained and used for the good of the other person. Um, and then for us to believe. I mean, I think it starts with us to believe that the Spirit is producing gentleness within us. If we're connected to Christ, if we're a believer in him, this is the work of the Spirit, and that's one of the characteristics. No matter what our sort of natural personality or disposition is, it's, it's a supernatural thing that God would be building in his people this idea of gentleness. Kevin, my name, is an old Irish name, and it means gentle or kind. And so I have to ask the question, do I live up to my name? You don't have to answer that question. <laughs> But I do, right? I, we have to consider this question. We have to ask God to continue to change us to more 
to make us more like himself. And there are a lot of questions that are related. How do we use our strengths, whatever they are? Are we oriented to be strong on behalf of the weak? Are we even aware that strength can be used that way? Right? It's very counterintuitive. And it's not just this idea of the strong protecting the weak. That's part of it. That's important, that the strong are a voice for the weak and the oppressed. That's very uh, biblical. You see it everywhere in the Bible. But it's also a matter of discipleship. It's a matter of investing in others. It's a matter of leadership, of being strong and intentional for the good of someone else. That's what this kind of gentleness looks like. It looks like a requirement for us to, to have other people on our radar and their feelings on our radar and for us to be able to uh, be intentional about using gifts that we have, experiences or wisdom, to help someone out who is, who's weaker or who's in a vulnerable position. But even before thinking about those things, I would encourage you to consider this week Jesus' invitation to the weary. If we want to have a picture of biblical gentleness, if we want to see it, if we want to have a vision for it, we have to look at the Savior. And this strong and gentle Savior is calling you to put down your earthly burdens and to take up his yoke. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And that's a promise for us to count upon, because we are weary and burdened, aren't we? Jesus' answer for us is to come as we are, to recognize that fact. You have to begin there. But to recognize that you're invited, and to find out what that kind of gentleness really looks like in him. One who can sympathize with your weakness. One who knows what it is that life is hard. And one who can give you a different burden. It's easy. It's a loving burden that's light. The one that can give us real rest. He's the one that we need. He's the gentle one who calls us to be gentle. Ask for the Spirit to produce this in your life, in your heart, this week, to those inside of the church, to those outside of the church, whoever you come in contact with. Speak these words to yourself, what it means that Jesus is gentle to you, and he's invited you to draw near to him. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful this morning that we see so clearly in who you are in your character and in your Son what it looks like for strength to work on behalf of weakness. Father, help us to be people who see our weakness and who don't hide it, uh, but people who embrace it because it means uh, that you're, you're near to us. And it means that we can rely on your strength instead of our own. Lord, help us to uh, see this in, in our lives more clearly. And God, help us as we relate to one another and as we relate to those outside of the church to be respectful, to be gentle, to be kind, and patient, and all of these things that you are producing in our lives through your Spirit. Make it happen in us more and more, we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen.